0: falls to the ice, Red Wings come back out, not very far with that play,
1: and a chance for Fergus, in shot from Fergus, and he's been hot for Toronto.
0: a special hello goes out to the director of media for the boston girls alumni Mr. I see him,
2: hockey. welcome to the pro hockey alumni podcast the voice of hockey legends this show is created to give a voice to former pro players and personalities allowing them to share some of the greatest stories this game has to tell so let's take a trip to the heart of the classic hockey universe and celebrate the history of the game with the select few who actually lived it. Episode 68 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features Tom Fergus, who played 726 NHL games with the Boston Bruins, Toronto Maple Leafs, and Vancouver Canucks in the 1980s and early 90s. Fergus was known for his sensational wrist shot, which helped him record back-to-back 30-goal seasons with Boston and Toronto and route to a total of 235 goals for his career. Tom is entertaining and insightful as he recalls his long shot road to the NHL draft, his junior coach Mike Keenan, the much-publicized contract battle and eventual trade from Boston, and he provides great anecdotes about John Brophy, Pat Quinn, Terry O'Reilly, Wendell Clark, Boyer Salming, and many other great names from that unforgettable era. Today Tom is active with the Toronto Maple Leafs alumni raising money for various charities throughout Ontario and beyond. Speaking of charities, just a reminder that we have joined NHL alumni Tom Laidlaw, Frank Sabinetti, and Ken Hodge Jr. in support of the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEALs Foundation. Through the game of hockey, the Warrior for Life Fund supports our soldiers providing programs and infrastructure that helps military families cope with the unique challenges of combat, extended deployments, disabilities, and the long-lasting effects of war. Please visit WarriorForLifeOn.org for more information. Remember, you can follow us anywhere online at Pro Hockey Alumni and as always we greatly appreciate your outstanding ratings and reviews You leave us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Tom Fergus. Well, I just got off the phone with Bruins legend Rick Nifty Middleton, who reminded me that our next guest had the most devastating wrist shot of anybody he saw during the 1980s. Our guest played 12 seasons of the National Hockey League, productive years with Boston, Toronto, and Vancouver. And we're thrilled to have him here. Tom Fergus, thanks so much for being on the show today.
0: Hey, great to be here. And I, I think uh, Nifty, he's too kind.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the good thing is that uh, when you do the research on it, his thoughts were echoed by many players in that generation. But for you, you always have a kind of an oddity in your bio and that is you were born in Chicago, USA and of course at a very young age you moved to the suburbs of Montreal and i'm assuming because of that geographical uh, location that you started playing hockey at a re- relatively early age.
0: Yeah, we were uh, my dad was in the tobacco business and uh, I was the sixth of seven kids and uh, Two months into my life we moved to Montreal. So yeah, I was born and bred with the hockey. And the funny part is my dad never skated once, but in Montreal we skated outside, I think, till I was probably eight or nine years old. All the leagues were outside. It was it was a hockey hotbed as far as I knew at that time. So
2: did you did your family grow up as Canadian fans?
0: Well, funny enough, no. I don't. My my dad and my brothers were a little bit of everything, and most of us loved the Boston Bruins. Funny enough, so I was always a Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, Derek Sanderson, all those guys in the '70s who I grew up watching. And I remember getting to games in uh, the Montreal Forum, and as soon as Orr would touch the puck, they just booed us. We went out of them <laughs> all the time. I never realized booing was a good thing till I went to a game and watched Orr play.
2: <laughs> That's funny. The thing about it is that back in that time period, uh, it was before the age of super specialization. So I'm wondering if in addition to hockey, you played multiple sports.
0: We, we did everything. My dad was a huge Chicago Bears fan, obviously from coming from... Chicago. So we played Little League football. We played high school football. We played baseball. We played not too much soccer. but And hockey. And, and the thing back then was hockey ended. Another sport started. Mm-hmm. The other sport ended. another. So it was always now everybody's trying to steal the 12 months to play hockey for 12 months. I, I just don't see that. I, I've never agreed with it. I didn't agree with my own children because I thought you've got to get out and play some other sports. And realistically, as you get old, you play old-timer hockey, you play old-timer baseball, mm-hmm.
1: and you do a little
0: old-timer basketball. So I don't <laughs> understand these, these these parents who feel that, they, that there's one sport. And I, I think you, a lot of the parents today aren't as good as math as we were because Less than 1% make it to the NHL, so that that's not a real uh, high
2: percentage. No question about it, and so many of those skills transfer as well. So you know, Wayne Gretzky, for example, played lacrosse actively, and those skills, in many ways, uh, crossed over, and a lot of hand-eye coordination. I, I just had a, a recent interview with Bob Bourne, the former New York Islander, and he reminded me that he and Clark Gillies were uh, both drafted by the Houston Astros and played minor league baseball in their system, too. So, again, being able to be versatile among sports certainly uh, has significant benefits, to be sure. Now, for yourself, well, you know, I
0: think it. I think uh, today's kid not playing all these sports, or even I, I see uh, parents with their soccer, they do indoor all winter I think it's crazy. And I, I've said I coach minor hockey all the way up. Mm-hmm. And I said, Danny, no kid will not make this team because he's in the playoffs of football. Right. He will go finish football and come to the hockey after he's done. I was always strong on playing other sports. And I think it's a shame when you look and you see kids. I, I have uh, nephews who never played baseball. You know, and now they're older working. And I think you never played baseball. It's like, what do you mean you never played baseball? Because we never played in the league. We did hockey all year round. And you know what? For most people, what for? Right. And the other big thing about a sport is when you take three, four months off of it, you're dying to get back on that ice and play. Oh, yeah. So the, the desire seems to fire up a little more because when you become a a pro or on your way to becoming trying to become a pro, you skate every single day and you work out every day to become a pro. So the amount of love you have to have for it is is really unbelievable. And I don't think you can maintain, you know, that kind of love if you're doing it, you know, three hundred and sixty five days a year. It's, anyway, I, I'm a, I'm I'm not for that at all.
2: No, I agree with you as a parent of a teenager Uh, I I totally concur with that and you know speaking of those teenage years you uh, are hitting like you're you get to be 16 years old you hadn't hit your growth spurt yet and you try out for junior B hockey in Ontario and you don't make it right away you end up playing junior D which you did you did
0: you did your homework
2: jesus well so how is that as a now i'm talking like again as a a parent of a 16 year old you haven't hit your growth spurt yet so there's a lot of undeveloped uh ability there that maybe people didn't notice right away uh but you are faced with as a good athletic uh young man you're faced with some adversity right off the back you talk a little bit about that obviously the story ends well but in that period where you have some rejection right off the bat, how does that uh, how does that play in well, the young, young mind?
0: To be honest with you, I, I can't tell you how pissed off I was. <laughs> how upset <laughs> because I was cut so quickly. But on the other side of it, I was the smallest, smallest kid. I, it, it's hard to believe when people have – you know, see me now or see me in my 20s because I was the smallest kid up till about 14 or 15 years old. It was within one year I became smallest to one of the tallest on the team. Mm-hmm. But I still think the idea, it still irks me to this day that I was cut. Not that I was cut, that I was cut so quickly. Right. So within two days I was done. So yes, yes did it fuel a little energy? A 100%. I always tell parents I always will. Getting cut's not the worst thing in the world. It's really an opinion of one or two people in this world.
2: Right, exactly. So it,
0: it's, to to me it was a driving force to to we'll see how that works out. And then growing was great, and I always had a desire to play hockey. So it was a funny so it was a funny thing. Because within a year, I had gone past junior B right to junior A, but that coach kept calling, asking my mom when he comes home, tell him to you know, come back out for this team that he had cut me.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So it, it was nice. I think my mother enjoyed it the best to say he's not coming home. He made the junior A team.
2: That's so, beautiful. It, it, That's it, it, great. Was
0: a, it was a funny time, but it was also a time that – was a kick in the... I I never really had aspirations to become a pro because my dad never skated. I just loved hockey and kept moving along, so to speak. Hockey was never... You know, we never talked about pro, I think, until I went to the Bruins camp. I think until I got drafted and went to my first Bruins camp and realized, okay, I can make this team. Mm -hmm. I can play at this level, you know?
2: Well, that's great. It's also... a a tremendous growing experience and a great lesson again i can identify being a parent and seeing similar things in my own family but you go down and you play in in junior d and you work your tail off gary green the uh, highly respected coach at peterborough petes uh, notices that at that time you end up as you said you make the big leap all the way to junior a and not only do you play in Junior A, you have a head coach named Mike Keenan. And what is that experience like? So you've made, a, as I said, a, a heck of a leap. Now yeah. you're in Junior A. Well, so what's that whole experience like for a young guy like yourself?
0: You know what? It just seemed to happen so quick that I, I was I, – you didn't really know what you were thinking. We were in the actual – Playoffs in the All Ontario of Junior D, and, and and trust me when I say Junior D, I always say D hard because <laughs> a lot of people think that if I don't play on the best team, the best league, the best, the best, growing up, then I can't make it. Well, if I look back and being cut, Junior D gave me a lot of ice time. Mm-hmm. And so we and we went all the way to the finals, and it was in a small town called Fergus, Ontario.
2: Wow, <laughs> we had, and,
0: and then we moved on and played Lakefield, which was right next to Peterborough. So it, all things worked out because I know when they drafted me, they got a lot of heat going. Where and where did you find this guy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the actuality was the head scout of Peterborough lived in Brantford, which was seven kilometers away from St. George. So I mean, I, I remember scouting was. They had scouts there, but not like they have today with all the internet. and the, No kid really goes unnoticed now. I think in the old days they did, or they played in some obscure places where they weren't seen. Because as we know, the further you go in the playoffs, the more people watch. Right. So my movement along into junior A, I think was helped again by a guy like Mike Keenan. Because I didn't play a lot, but he worked us really hard in practice. He was always—I want to use a foul word here—but he was—he <laughs> was the kind of coach that was always able to keep you on edge. Mm-hmm. You never really knew if you were on the team. I remember at Christmas time, my first year, I—I I only had a couple of goals. I only had a couple of goals really all year, but I even had less halfway through the year. <laughs> and he called me in at Christmas, and he called me and sat me in his office and said to me, hey, you can stop worrying. We're not going to send you home. (laughs) I walked out of there. I was like, is he kidding? Or I never had the thought he was going to send me home. You know, so I'm like, holy
1: shit.
0: (laughs) So he always... That's what he did. That's why I don't think he can be as effective today, because kids aren't like we were back then. Back then, we were just happy as hell to be on the team, mm-hmm. and you did what you were told to stay on the team. So he, he Mike Keenan helped me my first year. He I know a lot of people have different ideas of him. I think he was very helpful to me, and he pushed and pushed. And he always wanted more. I sort of wish he was in my second year, too. He moved on, and I didn't get him my second year.
2: Right. Yeah, speaking of that second year, you are extremely productive, as you noted. You were noticed by Gary Darling, the chief scout of the Boston Bruins. Your head coach that year was the, I guess I'd call him the studious Dave Dryden. It would seem to be a, a contrast to Mike Keenan. Was that the case?
0: Oh, 100% contrast. I, I mean, Dave, Dave was... Was not, I I think he had to do, he didn't do time anywhere else. I think he got the job. He came off three, a team that had three Memorial Cup appearances, which is the top trophy here in Canada for junior hockey. And I just don't think he was ready for it. Whether he was a good coach or not, I'm not sure. I was used to Mike Keenan at the time. Right. And Mike was a, Every day, on you, on you, on you. Like, you, he never, I, I asked Mike one time, how can you be, for lack of better words, how could you be a prick every single day? <laughs> and and the reality is, he could do it. He, he was hard on you every day, very rarely let up on you. So then second, my second year, we had a coach who was really trying to play mind games with you. And he did a lot of things that were, just not going for the not in the direction of the team. That's for sure. I mean, you, you, he'd bench guys in their hometowns. We yeah. all moved away from home and go back to our hometown, and and you wouldn't play in, in your hometown where, guys, when you go back to your hometown, are dying to play in that town. You usually have your best games in those towns. So things weren't very good there the second year, which was so disappointing because we had a lot of good guys returning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Murphy was on that team, although he turned pro as an underage. It was the start of the underage at that time. So it was a tough year, actually.
2: So one question I'd like to ask players uh, from this generation is, you were drafted number 60 overall, third-round Boston Bruins. How did you hear about that?
0: (laughs) Mm On the... uh, I, we were, I, I roomed with three other, me, there were three of us in the house. We roomed. We just sat by the phone, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say we sat, you know, we were in the house waiting to hear, we, I mean, we were waiting to hear on a lot of guys, not only yourself, but we had a lot of friends at that time that were looking to get drafted.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the news came in very sporadic. It wasn't like today where you know on in an instant who's drafted and not. So I really got a call from the uh, from my agent and said, to be honest with you, I was ecstatic to get drafted at any time. I only had six, eight goals and six assists in, I think, 60 games.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So to, to even be drafted in the third round, I went to training camp, and I remember Barry Peterson was first. He had 140 and Steve Casper. We didn't have a second round, so Steve Casper was fourth, and I think he had 118. So those two guys, we used to laugh. He goes, oh, I just thought they forgot to put a one in there. <laughs>
2: that's funny. Yeah.
0: So it was... So that was, it was uh, yeah, that's how we found out. You just sort of waited around until somebody phoned you.
2: So the Bruins at that point... It's interesting you bring up Barry Peterson and Steve Casper because the Bruins... As I, as I noted earlier, my most recent guest was Bob Bourne. We talked about uh, the Islanders' 1980 playoff victory over the Bruins, which kind of signaled uh, a changing of the guard in Boston. Uh, a lot of the veteran players were, were moving on. Some were still there, but a lot of young kids like yourself, uh, Keith Crowder, Bruce Crowder, uh, Cruz uh, Ray Bork, Brad McCrimmon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. A lot of young guys coming in in that generation and some veterans uh, obviously still left over cashman mark odd brad park so what for a young guy like yourself is it like going to that first boston bruins training camp
0: well I, my first year i went i went right out right as soon as i was drafted so i didn't uh i had no i didn't have a contract that was a year where guys would go if they had a contract and guys would, you know, you, you you and your agent made that choice. Well, my choice was really never a choice. I was going no matter what, because why wouldn't I go? I only had eight goals and six assists. I mean, who's going to give, like, what kind of contract should you get for that? <laughs> so, so I went to see what it was like. I trained hard all summer, very hard. And I went more as a, I went more as a fan. It's like I wanted to see what it was like. And right. So again, Harry, as oh, this story will go, Harry didn't do always the best for me. But at that time, he was great. He, I never went to a rookie camp. I never went to a rookie And back then, they had a full rookie camp. And then they took a few of those rookies to play with the big boys. I never went to a rookie camp. He put me right into the main camp. And things went well. I think more so because I was in good shape. I used to run six six country miles every day, because mm-hmm. my parents lived in the country, and we trained. And I lived with a guy, and we trained and trained. So as we went to the camp, I was more in the fun mode than really trying to make the hockey team.
1: Right.
0: So as we as camp went and and it all went well. I had signed, Harry asked, offered me a contract. So I really had an NHL contract before scoring 10 goals in junior. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's really a funny story. So then, you know, I'm, I'm, we're a week and a half into camp. I'm ready to go back to junior and try to, you know, try to win with the Peter Ropi. And he says to me, he goes, we're going to play in an exhibition game. So you remember I was only about hundred and eighty pounds. Mm-hmm. One hundred and seventy but I was six foot two. So that's a rather skinny anyway, so my parents weren't too crazy about it. It was against Philadelphia and I think it's seventy nine or eighty we're talking.
2: Wow, what do I say? My parents
0: to were too Yeah, so my parents weren't too uh fond of it. <clears throat> So they get so, but I thought, well, what the hell? I mean, that's what I wanted to do. So let's go. Well, the funny thing is, as we knew in training camp in those days, it was a little bit of a gloom. You know, they dressed and Philadelphia had probably fifteen guys who wanted to fight on it. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is, Harry was no dummy. He, my line mates, were Stan, Jonathan, and Terry O'Reilly. Wow. <laughs> And, and I've never, I don't think I've ever had a better teammate than Terry O'Reilly. I've never, even all the years I've played, all the years I've seen people, I've never played with a guy who was so much the team first.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You never, you never, he never let anybody get hit or pushed around where he didn't stick his, <laughs> I want to say his head in there, but he'd really stick his whole body in there. I mean, right. he's just a great guy he was a great guy to be as a teammate and he started it off from the day I was a young kid
2: he when you watch occasionally i watch old games from maybe that that generation or before watch Terry O'Reilly and it's amazing the level of effort he put forth each game each shift sacrificing was, uh, himself it
0: was it was and, you know, I mean, there's there's no question. A lot of guys worked hard. The Bruins, the Bruins to this day, are that of a hard-working team. If nothing else, you're going to get full effort out of it. It's just the, it's just what the Bruins fans expect, right? And that's what they get. And O'Reilly really was the epitome of that hardworking guy. You know, it was it was great to see every day.
2: Absolutely, that's a great influence for you and a good story and. Bruins fans certainly can appreciate that. And for yourself, you played junior hockey eighty eighty one. You have the big year we noted, but you never play a game in the minor leagues. And you go right to the, you make the Boston Bruins roster for the eighty one eighty two season. Do you remember your first NHL regular season game?
0: I, I you know, I do. I remember it. I know I made a pass and got an assist 23 seconds in. I mm-hmm. thought, "Well, this is going to be easy." <laughs> uh, I do. I remember it. No, I remember sort of the. I remember the summer leading up to it, after I had training camp the year before, which I'm so thankful I went, because then I could really see what it was like, and I, I had full idea of making the team when I went. There was no going to just say hello. It was I knew I could make it, and then, and then I think you were off on one year. The Bruins were really in the mode of changing when they lost, I, I believe, three straight to Minnesota the year before. Yeah, they they were a full house. Then they were moving guys out and bringing young guys in, so it was a great time for a change of guard, so to speak. And the thing the Bruins did well most of the time, I can't say all the time, is when they made the change, they kept the key ingredients to help the young guys. We had Rick Middleton. We had O'Reilly. We had Cashman. We had Brad Park. And Ray was, was you know, obviously had just run, won the Rookie of the Year, so he was no slouch either, but he was still a young kid. So, And I think Ray learned from those guys. We had Don Marcotte for a year, and they, they, he ended up uh, retiring. But the Bruins were good at – they did clean house with a lot of guys, but they kept key guys, you know, that, that really did – and I, I'm probably missing a few guys, but they really kept the older guys that really helped the younger guys. And, and that's I think that's what the Bruins do, as good as anybody. No different than Chara today. I mean, he's still a productive player. But he also brings a hell of a lot more to the team than just that. He's a big influence. He's been around. He's a pullout. I don't know, he's probably played 15 years. So he helps the younger guys. And I think that's what the Bruins do so well. They understand that you need the older guys to help the younger. Even the young, good hockey players need to learn.
2: Right. And along those lines too, your head coach at the time is Jerry Cheevers, assistant coach Jean Rattel. Uh, what what was the coaching like at Boston in those early years?
0: It was great. I I, I have no no complaints on that. cheesy was a great guy. He was he was a players coach. And, and I think along with what I just said with the older guys, I think the older guys were able to help the young guys. The older guys were able to help Cheesy. I, I think it just was a great working environment. And for us, Steve Casper, Barry, and me, and Peter McNabb was there at the time, we had John Rattel to help us. He was the assistant coach and he was a star you know, centerman. Mm-hmm. So we really had the best of both worlds. Uh Chevy was a sort of an easy going an a well, very easy going guy, but we had good teams and we had good chemistry and we had that overall what a team should be with young, medium and older guys. And again, that's what the Bruins do so well.
2: Right. And everything really comes together in one of my favorite seasons of season that's underrated in Bruins' history one that I thoroughly enjoyed, was 1982-83. You took those pieces that you just mentioned of young players and veterans, you added goaltender Pete Peters, and that 82-83 team overcame adversity like few other teams would, with the loss of Norman Levy early in the season. Uh, Terry O'Reilly missed much of that year. Steve Casper missed much of that year. Still, the Bruins go to the top of the league, and it was an exciting season. Nifty Middleton, of course. Uh, Barry Peterson, yourself, you popped 28 goals. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that uh, really ex- exciting, fun, and exciting 82-83 season.
0: Again, it was it was a fun. I, I think all the years in Boston were fun. I was young, but they, they, um, it just seemed to be, again, I always put it to the fact that all the guys got along and we had leadership all over the room. We had young guys and we had some good young guys. Barry was, I mean, Peter McNabb said it about Barry Peterson, the best. He doesn't do anything great, but he does everything very, very well. He didn't have the best shot, but he had a real good shot. I think I think he was always underestimated for how well he passed the puck, if he could really pass that. And and I just think those guys, they stepped it up. Nifty stepped up. Barry did. Khrushlinski had a decent year, I believe, in that year. Yep. So, again, it was just, I think all the guys got along, and it was the Bruin mentality of you either worked hard or you didn't play. So, with all the injuries... Yeah, you always. I, I think anytime there's an injury, people step up, you know, and, and, and that's generally what happened. Keith Crowder is another guy that came in and started to play tough and good hockey, and I think he scored at, whatever, 30-some-odd goals. Right. So it was, just, it was just an overall fun season, and Boston was a fun team to play on.
2: And you uh obviously a key component of that. You keep getting – better as time goes on i have to ask you the question that you're always asked now's a good time to ask it is when it comes to tom fergus you're always going to hear about the wrist shot which uh players marveled at then and still say even in uh alumni hockey is still there so is that something that you i suppose you had you were you were tall strong kid, so you had some genetic predisposition to uh have your good wrist shot is that something you worked on
0: I, 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 mean, I think we always worked on it after and before practices. But I didn't even know, to be honest with you. I just, I think it came on as as the years went by. I mean, it it tells me one thing. For all these years, getting into my fifties, is I must have been really dumb too, because I didn't use it as much as I should have. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I didn't really realize it. I think O'Reilly said it one time. <laughs>
1: You're, you know,
0: in the early years, I was there, but it wasn't like I don't know. I never really thought about it as much as you know. One day you wake up and you realize, holy shit, I I can shoot the puck. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't something I thought about. I wish I did. <laughs> and I think I think that's where a guy in my second year in Peterborough, a Mike Keenan, would have been a a, a lot more help to me than a Dave Dryden because Mike Keenan was there and he was sort of a hockey lived and breathed hockey and i think he would have helped out the cause more
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know but no as far as shooting the puck i don't know i never really thought about it as much i wish i did i wish someone told me back then i would have used <laughs> it more <laughs> well
2: you use it enough to score 30 goals in 1984 85 and now we come to that part of the story where we're at the beginning of the '85-'86 uh, season in training camp, and this is where, so often you hear stories of uh, when at contract time with Harrison, and usually doesn't end have a, have a, have a happy ending. In this case, you and your your agent Bob Murray were uh, smart enough; to had a long-term deal, but a, a renegotiation clause uh, right in the middle there, which kicked in after the '84-'85 season whether the well, Bruins didn't want to acknowledge that or not, but nonetheless, that gets you uh, uh, in a holdout situation potentially, and then off to Toronto. But can you talk a little bit about the end of Boston and the contract uh, issue?
0: Well, I, I think it's, um, first of all, it's actually a, it was a funny time, because at no time did I not love playing in Boston. I know the fans, when I went back, were, booing and everything, and I, I chalked it up to the simple fact they didn't really know what went on, mm-hmm. because I'll tell you what went on is, is the average career was four four 4.2 or 3.4 years at that time in the 80s, surprisingly enough. Because again, they always talk about the guys who play fifteen years. They don't talk about the guys who play two years, one year, twenty games. Mm-hmm. They don't. So the average career was was like they I mean, will say four. It's a, it's around four years, and I had renegotiation con in my contract the year before that year, so I went in to renegotiate, um, and Harry was like he had Alan Eagleson, who we all know was really working for. To owners, said, Wow, you have it in your next year's contract. Let's let's um, you know let's forget about it this year, we'll do it next year. So and, and it wasn't really up for negotiation. You know, like that was sort of what I took and that's what I left. Mm-hmm. So I, I played that whole next year to get to the 30, whatever, 31 goals. I went in the next year and asked. They were going to do the same to me. Now I'm going into my fifth year and we're making, I, I, I'm going to, if I was guessing right, I might've been making 90, eighty five thousand dollars I didn't want to raise to be today's kid would get a million dollars, $2 million raise for scoring 30 goals. Yeah. But again, we're back in those days. So I wanted 20,000, 25,000, you know, whatever the goal and rate was, nothing, you just didn't get those kind of raises back then.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: I told my agent, "If I said I wanted a, a raise, like I want a definite raise, there's no ifs ands or buts about it. I'm, I could be out of hockey in two years, and they'll give me." A, I'm, or it was still, "You're too young. You're too young." He had every excuse. It just wasn't driving going into my fifth year. Mm-hmm. So I told my agent straight up, "I, I want a raise." Or we're not we're gonna we're not gonna play here. So he came in to me that day, well not the best day and I remember no cell phones. So he meets me on the way on the ice to practice. He says like, and I and I had strictly told him if he offers me ten thousand to tell him to stick it where the sun don't shine. <laughs> so he comes to me, he goes, Well, I have good news and I got bad news. I go, What's the good news? He goes, He offered you a raise. I go, What's the bad news? He goes. He offered you ten thousand. Hmm. So, at that point, I was like, you know what? If you think that little to offer ten thousand dollars, I mean, I don't think I'm being greedy to want more than ten thousand dollars after going into my fifth season hmm. and the team was doing well. See, we were a good team. My my stats were improving every year. So that's when I just happened to go on TV and ask to be traded because I, I didn't think there was any any way out of. And you know, you didn't really budge Harry when he didn't want to pay somebody. There's, I don't think in the history of the Bruins, I'm the first guy to leave with a money problem.
2: Now, I remember specifically Mike Krusinski in the same issue uh, a, a little, little bit earlier.
0: Yeah, but exactly. So, but I'll never, I'll never forget the the. Was it a a mistake or not a mistake? Toronto has been very good to me. I think the Bruins are a, was a great time in my life. I have no regrets. Should I have maybe held out and not done what I did? I I guess you always have a, because actually as this story goes. I'll tell you a funnier story that, that I did in Toronto, but with Harry, I, I, he sort of puts your back up against the wall. And I have all the respect in the world for Harry. He always had good teams when he was GM. Mm-hmm. But really, going into my fifth year and he had never given me a race, I just, you know, that just, I was just like, and then all I've heard about is all the other guys he's done it to. You
1: well, definitely, so got, yeah, you did.
0: I'm not,
2: nothing personal. You definitely weren't alone, that's for sure.
0: So I mean, it's disappointing. That it was disappointing when I went back to my first game and they were booing because he can get out to the press what he wants to get out. And we're sort of we laying ducks at the time. And I remember seeing Harry years after. I said, Harry, you really got me on that one, right? Because what he got out to the press seemed to be that, that I was greedy, and 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 I, you know, I laughed greedy. All I wanted was a. a semi raid not to be the lowest-paid guy in the whole league.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. And back in those you know, days, but, be, you know, pre-internet days, if the team had a great relationship with, in this case, the Boston Globe or Boston Herald, uh, they could get their message out there, and the players kind of left defenseless in a lot of ways. So, um, But you end up do get trading to the historic Toronto Maple Leafs franchise, and, but it's a franchise that's in somewhat disarray at that point. What was the culture difference? Now, Dan Maloney's a coach in year one in 85-86, I believe. What's the culture difference between Boston and Toronto, if any, at that point?
0: The, the, the culture difference in Toronto was exactly the opposite of what I said the Bruins were. They, they didn't have the older guys. They didn't have the middle guys. And they had some really good young talent. Oh, we, yeah. we really did, but everything was directed. If I look back into the 80s, you know, you always need parts. It's a, it's a, the team's a big puzzle. You need parts. You have to, A good GM figures the parts you need, and he inserts them into the, to a line. And we just seem to have GMs and Harold who always seem to trade the wrong guy, the wrong goalie, the wrong – it was just like an ongoing show. But the one thing here is is the fans never it, it's a it's a a different level of fan not a different level, a different amount. Like we are like the New England Patriots right. in Toronto.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like so the fans here it, it's even to this day they're they're so they're they're running a, a much better show now and a much better they have better people in power but you just can't, I can't wait for them to win because the town the city deserves a winning team but when i went there they just they just didn't do any they had a bombastic owner who was a mouthpiece so you never knew if he'd cut up your best player or your worst player from day to day it was there was no semblance of order there was no we started hiring coaches and gms that nobody else would hire Right, because nobody wanted to work for this guy. So you, you're really, it, it was. I mean, it was 100 percent the opposite of Boston. You know, I don't. I don't think there's the only really comparison you can really put is we all put on skates. <laughs> you know, it, that that. But that's the kind of difference. So when people go go to Boston, you have a couple, A couple of Boston is its own little. It's just a generational thing that just keeps getting passed down. How they do it, I think it's, I I don't really know how they do it, but they play the same way today. I mean, obviously there's not as much fighting, but they certainly stick up for each other and they hit and they play a hard-nosed game. So it's just, and Toronto back in the day had the players. We just didn't put the puzzle together. The coaching was you know, it's hard to say good or bad. It just wasn't for the team we had. I mean, we hired a guy that wanted to be the, you know, he was a tough minor league player. So he wanted the toughest team in the world. And you're sort of like, look around the room. Like, we can plenty play that style. We have to control the pocket, you know. So it was, it was a, uh, it was a long time, but again I'm glad to have played for the Toronto because they are an historic team,
2: right? Right. It's a shame what happened to the franchise in that stretch of time. When you looked at the where they were in the late in the late seventies, for example, Landon McDonald scores in overtime, they beat the Islanders in that playoff series and yeah. you had Sittler McDonald and Salming and Palmateer, et cetera, et cetera, and the good good young players coming up, as you said. In your generation and your time there, you had uh, great young talent: Wendell Clark and Ally Afrady, Steve Thomas, Rick Vive, Russ Cortnall, et etc. But as you said, you couldn't put the pieces together. You mentioned John Brophy. As you said, a bit of a mismatch for that group of <laughs> that yeah. group of young, talented, <laughs> skilled guys. Uh, but I have to ask you about uh, Brophy because he's so. Interesting and I, I don't hear a, a ton of positive things when I talk to players who uh, had that experience working with him. maybe a bit of a mismatch a as you said a minor league legend the guy who had good success coaching in the low minors, but in the spotlight of Toronto with a highly skilled team seemed to be a poor match
0: well, he just he wasn't I mean he did not coach in any way, shape, or form to the team we had you know it just you know we made some Made some trades on his behalf because he wanted to get tougher. He's, I mean, again, funny. He, he was not my kind of coach at all because he didn't play with control in the puck. Mm-hmm. But he he was a, he was a funny. He was a like we we go on road trips now as alumni, and I tell you, we can take an eight-hour bus ride and be laughing at stories he did. <laughs> That's how bizarre. And, but at the time, it was like, oh my God, what, you know what the frick is going on here? <laughs> so he just—he was a minor league. He was a scare. He liked to scare you. Mm-hmm. He liked to scare you. And the more you, you know, you, again, you you don't come up into a team and scare a guy like Brad Park or O'Reilly, right? You know, you just don't do that stuff. The NHL is a whole different level than the minor leagues, and really, you only have. Like he was very, very ignorant to like the third and fourth lines, Mm -hmm. because he knew he had control of sending you up and down and sending you to China and sending you, you know. So he definitely wasn't one of my favorite coaches, but if you sat with him at lunch and heard some of his stories, he was a funny (laughs) (laughs) storyteller. Unfortunately, that didn't put wins on the board.
2: That's for sure. The one player I wanted to ask you about that was a holdover from the Stronger Days was Hockey Hall of Famer Boyer Salming, who was winding his career down at that point. It's curious what your thoughts are on Boyer Salming, uh, what his presence was like, and what he was like as a teammate.
0: He was a wonderful, great guy. He was a hardworking. He played hard every night. He did his job. And, and when I look back, he was he's she's just a really great even keel guy. and I think that part of him kept him in Toronto all those years because at times he started one season with all rookies. So his, his sort of temperament, was he was able to do that because he played hard every single night. He played tough. He played whatever kind of hockey. I mean, he wasn't a fighter by any stretch, but he played any kind of hockey. You wanted. was always positive, was always in a. You know, obviously he got down like the rest of us when you've lost a few, but he was just a great guy that I think through those really hard times, even before, even in the early 80s, before I got there, when he started with three rookies, I think most guys would have gone in and said, "Hey, get me out of here." Yeah, you know, and 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 I think in his defense, I think if he did, you would have heard a lot more about him than you did, because I think he would have been, you know, if you ever put him on the Oilers in his in his heyday or in his mid career days, I think you would have seen stuff would have been unbelievable.
2: Yeah, I agree. You
0: know, so he he he's but again he's he's a legend here in Toronto. He's a wonderful guy and and he did what he thought was right, and he played it out to the end. I know he did I think a year in Detroit at the end. Mm-hmm. but he was a great guy and skilled and talented and could he could do everything. he could do everything. He was a great guy.
2: One other player I wanted to ask you about was the young kid on the team, Wendell Clark. And he came in and was as advertised, as tough as Dale, skilled as all the heck. And I was curious uh, what you're reminiscent of uh, reminiscing of Wendell Clark was when he was eighteen, nineteen years old.
0: Well, I, I tell you, when he first came in, I had seen some tough guys in Boston. I had seen some interesting fights, And I remember watching Wendell in his first fight. Well, I don't know if it was his first, but very early, early, because I was traded after his first game. So really, I played seven years with him in Toronto.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: remember the first game, Ben Wilson, who was a notorious sort of crazy guy. Oh, yeah. slime so on the bench, and, and he goes to hit Wendell, and Wendell cross-checks him and knocks him over, and I'm thinking, and I have no idea who Wendell Clark is. Never really heard of him. <laughs> didn't nothing about it. So I'm on the bench and I'm thinking to myself and think I hope this kid knows what he's getting into here. You know, at least <laughs> be prepared because this guy's crazy. You never yeah. know if he'll throw the stick or he'll, whatever. So it, Ben goes at him, Wendell knocks him over with a cross check. I'm like, oh, You know, you're like, wow. And they start fighting. And you know I'm a homer, so I, I I always like to think my guy won. But if he didn't win, it was strict. It was a fifty-fifty
1: mm-hmm.
0: knockdown fight. So I'm so the game ends, and, we're, and I have to sit next to him in the dressing room. So I said to him, I said, just make sure you're ready tomorrow night. Right, we're going back to Chicago. Ben was in on Chicago, so we're going. We have a home at home. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I don't give a shit. He goes, I don't give a shit. I'm ready right now if he wants. (laughs) So I'm like, like, okay, well, he goes back into Chicago. The same events happen. Ben comes to him, Wendell knocks him down, and they start fighting. And Wendell, I believe, got the better of him in Chicago. I think it was a little bit of a down, I wouldn't say a downfall of Ben Wilson, but, you know, you just got. Taken by a, I think he was an eighteen-year-old kid, and I'm like, holy, <laughs> where the did this guy come on? But again, Wendell played like, I mean, again, that's he played like that every night. He it was, he came to play. He was a tough, hard, hard hitting kid, and not dirty at all. Not dirty. wasn't a stick man. wasn't a, He hit so hard that he got into fights, and he didn't waste any time when the fight you wanted to fight, right. he dropped them, and it was game on. But he was not a dirty player. Like, he didn't go sticking guys. He didn't go looking for it. He just played a hard game. He had a great shot, and he was a hard-working, tough kid. Again, he was a defenseman, right? Right. He was a defenseman. I, I don't know if him playing D, like, he never played D as, a, as an NHL player, but he was drafted as a defenseman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and that again is the same with a guy like Gary Lehman who had incredible skill he was an defenseman. they put him on forward we often talk now as old timers we wonder well what would happen if you just actually played the position you played your whole life how would you have been <laughs> That's you funny. Know, who we believe take you and change your position right away <laughs> but Wendell, another, he was another great guy. great guy he is a great guy to this day And he was a hard-working, tough, hard-hitting hockey player is what he was.
2: For yourself, Tom, there are some real challenges in Toronto, mainly with your health. First, you had mono early in your career. There or something like mono and missed a ton of time. But more egregious, I guess, from an injury standpoint is those silent type of injuries, the groin, the the the, the over the overtime, especially back in those days, those weren't easy to diagnose and weren't well uh, treated. It ends up with you spending a considerable amount of your last two years off the ice, riding the bike, trying to get this thing healed. What was that whole well, process it's, like?
0: It's a pain in the ass. For lack of better words, to be injured is a pain in the ass because you're always trying to come back. You're always trying to come back at time. So with my groin injury, I train all summer, stretch all summer, do it, follow the protocol really to a T. I know it was never a great stretcher, but we worked at it. Work where as soon as you got into any kind of pushing and pulling, it would just it just couldn't handle it. Right. So I went, went around and got all these doctors that had, that we're talking about these groin surgeries. So the, it ended up in Vancouver. The guy said, we did this for, you'll be the 10th guy. One of them was Nevin Markward. So I said, oh, I know Nevin, I'll give him a call. So I called Nevin, I said, because Nevin, I guess, had the same sort of injury. Remember When my groin was sore, it was sore from my belly button all the way down to my knees on both sides. Mm. Because no one was diagnosing it. It was to the point where I, it was either get it done or I can't play anymore. Yeah. So I called Nevin Markworth. I said, Nevin, what's up with this surgery? It's to fix a ligament inside by your pubic bone. So he goes, ah. And if and if you know Nevin at all, it's, oh, yeah. it, ah, no, no problem. He goes, <laughs> I was up and walking same day. So I'm like, okay. So so the funny part of this whole thing is the Leafs weren't really high on me getting the operation. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, it was Floyd Smith, and he was like, you know, and I'm like, "What do you think? I want an operation. I know I can't play without him fixing it." So to make a long story short, I go in and get the operation, and I'm laying in the bed. They fix a, a couple other things while they're in there, and he. Um, so I'm laying in the bed after the operation, and I have to go to the washroom. So I struggle to get up out of the bed. And I must—I must be dropping ten pounds of sweat now. I've been, you know, you're trying not to act like a, and I'm dying. And I finally get to the washroom, and I'm all over the place, almost falling down. Get back to my bed. The doctor comes in, and I said, "Doc, I said, something must be wrong because I can't even get up. Like I'm in—I'm <laughs> in a lot of pain." He goes. And I said, Nevin Markwart told me he got up same day. He looks at me, he goes, Nevin Markwart didn't get up for two days.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I called Nevin. I wanted to kill him. I go, you te- you didn't get up in two days, and here I'm struggling to try to get up two hours after the operation. <laughs> but anyway, so that that it at least prolonged my career. It wasn't the uh, it still was always yeah. I had I said my my fridge. My fridge had more ice packs than food in it, <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, for the remainder.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you end up getting sold to the Vancouver Canucks, a uh, team that was starting to improve. You play for Pat Quinn, and you're put on a line right away with uh, Jeff Courtnall and Trevor Linden, and your production comes back, and... Uh, what was that experience like? I've I, I talked to a lot of guys who played for Pat Quinn, and had very positive experiences. How was your experience with Pat Quinn and the Vancouver Canucks? Well,
0: well I, I I have to tell you, uh, I have to tell you about the go a little further back into the trade, how I ended up getting there. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I, I wouldn't say going on TV to get out of Boston was the proper way to do it. <laughs> but it was, you know, you do what you got to do. So this time I went into Cliff Fletcher. We just got Cliff Fletcher came in. So I figured they were on the right track, but I was getting older. And, you know, I thought, so I went in and talked to Cliff. And I said, Hey Cliff, I, I love playing in Toronto. I still want to play here, but, you know, I know you're gonna go, you're going to want to get younger. So if there's, you know, there's an opportunity... You know, you can throw me into the trade. The next day, he sends me down to the minors. Wow. (laughs) So it goes to show, is there really a good way to try to do something that helps you and your family? So within a day, he's trying to send me down. So it ended up, when I went to Vancouver, I, I thought, of all the guys to have respect for, I love Pat Quinn I mean he he was he reminded me a lot of my father actually mm-hmm. he was a, he was a good guy he was an intelligent guy he he had respect I don't think he looked for it it just followed him he was a smart guy he knew what he was doing and and I really I often said to him I go, I wish I was younger playing for you here mm-hmm you know because I, I really like Pat Quinn and I, I think he was just that kind of guy that commanded respect he knew what he was doing and he was an intelligent guy so you, you listen to him on on not only hockey stuff I really like Pat Quinn uh, and it's too bad he's not with us but he's I really liked
1: him
2: um, that seems to be unanimous among players that I've talked to. Uh, talk a little bit about as you end your NHL career. I talked to, I think it was John Van Boxmeer, talking about his experience coaching in the Swiss leagues. Uh, you went over there, a, a former teammate with Toronto, Ken Yaremchuk. You're playing on the same team. What was the overall experience like playing hockey uh, in the Swiss A League? Uh it was, you
0: know it's fantastic actually. The story is uh, so the, the minute we lost Edmonton in the playoffs, I had been skating with a guy, Sean Simpson, who played, junior, he was drafted to, uh, I think Chicago. Anyway, he had been over there for years. I skated with him in the summer and I said, when my end comes here, you know, I, I want to go over in Switzerland. And I really was at, in my own mind, debating whether I could do, I knew there was expansion coming into the NHL, but I didn't know if I could do 80 games anymore. Mm-hmm. I was sore all the time, you know, when you're, especially in your legs. If you're sore in your legs, you can't get the body moving too quick. Right. And I wasn't the fleetest of foot as it was, so to have that slow down. So I got a call the, the next morning, actually, and they said, do you want to come over? So I said, sure. And I ended up going over, and again, I look back on that as one of a very good decision I made as far as to see the other side of the world. I met some great people. Swiss was a full 36-game league at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I knew Kenny, and I knew Misko was on the team that actually tried out for the Bruins back in, I'm going to say, 80, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So I had kn- I knew a couple of guys, and I thought, what the hell? So I packed up, uh, it's like the Beverly Hillbillies, I packed <laughs> up three kids and the wife, and we went over, and... Uh, and, and we had a lot of fun I, I think I would have done another year or two only again my back started to act up and you know at some point enough's enough right
2: right well you today remain active with the Toronto Maple Leafs alumni and I uh, see you out there quite a bit and talk a little bit about your work with the Leafs alumni and still staying involved in that Toronto hockey community
0: Well, it's, I've often said that it's too bad that there's nothing out there that says how much the alumni guys, we have a large, large alumni here. So we could play two and we could have two, three, four events going on in one day. Mm -hmm. And I think the amount of money, like this, this what's going on today is cutting into a lot of the charities that we make, and one of them is in Boston. They, we do a big one in Boston that they raise a lot of money. Right. And I, I don't think I think I, I think it's getting better, but I think people think, oh, they're you know they're just old timers. They're like everybody else, old timers. But a lot of the guys put in a lot of time to raise money for charities. And it's you know when you sit and think, it's it's very nice that we can go have fun, play a little hockey. And raise money for charity. So Toronto is just a hotbed for it right now because we can raise some good money. Again, people are playing in the sport that we actually played, and they're really enjoying it. I think there's a little more one-on-one, and or, you know, you can talk to people when you're playing hockey and you got a you know an hour in between games. So it's really been a huge hit here, and and it's just. The alumni fully engulfed in it, but our our the parent club is very, very incredibly good to us and behind us and assisting us in making decisions and doing stuff to help out in all charity aspects.
2: Right, and that's so important in the work of keeping the tradition alive for the Leafs and doing that for the community's benefit, and of course doing it in conjunction with the Leafs team. we, are, As you know, our Bruins alumni operation runs the, the same way, 30-plus uh, uh, alumni charity games every year, plus a number of different events, and all for good cause. And, of course, the, the guys love to get together, and uh, everybody enjoys that. So commend you and the Leafs alumni for that, and... Just wanted to say thank you so much for being the guest on today's show. As I noted, we have a huge audience in both Toronto and Boston, so they will love this and you'll look back at an excellent career.
0: Hey, thank you very much, and uh, it's great to do it anytime.
2: Thank you for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, The Voice of Hockey Legends. If you enjoy listening to the show, please consider subscribing rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. This helps make our podcast more visible and accessible to hockey fans around the world. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions for the show, please contact me at prohockeyalumni.org or via social media at prohockeyalumni. The Pro Hockey Alumni greatly appreciates your support.